Hello, friends. We're back. It's Hit Factory. My name is Aaron. My name is Carly. And today we are privileged to have with us uh, legendary poster and podcaster Grim on the show. Grim, how's it going? Great. How y'all doing? So good. Yeah. Not really, actually. <laughs> it's <laughs> that's a lie. Yeah, <laughs> we're I mean, fine. We, we we do as good as we can given the circumstances, like materially <laughs> and externally, that we can't control in our lives. I'm very excited that we're finally talking about the things that we are going to talk about, which Aaron will mention in a moment, because I feel like, Grim, you and I messaged about this on Twitter, like, I don't know. Like a calendar year a ago? A year ago yeah. or something. <laughs> <laughs> like, I feel like this has been a long time in the making. Yes. Uh, I think it was like a year and a half ago, because it was probably when I watched Primary Colors. That was probably yeah. the impetus. Uh. <laughs> yes. I think you're right. I think you're right about that. Yeah. Well, it's it's been a long time coming. We finally got you on the show. And uh, with good timing, too, actually, because today we are going to be talking about two documentaries, two artifacts of the 1990s uh, that chronicle really the same year, the same time and place uh, in American culture and politics, which was the year 1992, uh, which was 30 years ago on the dot. God. And we are, uh, I, as of today's recording, I think maybe like 10 days removed from like being exactly in line with the, the beginning of the Democratic National Convention for 1992, in which uh, Clinton officially accepted the nomination alongside Al Gore uh, and would go on to become the president of the United States uh, that November. So we are going to be talking about those figures and, uh, and a couple of pieces of media that uh, portray them in very, very different ways and put them up alongside one another. The first is uh, the 1993 documentary, The War Room by D.A. Pennebaker and Chris Hegedus. And the second is a documentary from 1995 called Spin. And that one is done by Brian Springer um, with, with much less permitted access but actually the one of the two that that may hold more genuine revelations about the way that uh, our political apparatuses run and the way that the media uh, presents those things to us Grim, i'm curious uh what is your experience with both of these documentaries how did you first come to them and and uh what did they do for you <laughs> so uh i didn't see spin until i was uh 18 or 19 on google video if you guys remember that far back <laughs> yes um but it like it was like immediately first week upload kind of thing on google video and i saw it and uh i was like thoroughly impressed too because i had worked on um uh there's a, a campaign uh agrin in the uh the documentary that gets mentioned and i was like oh this is all the stuff that happened when i was doing kucinich work right um and to me it was like revelatory i was like okay so this is not a new thing this is you know uh george lucas history rhymes it repeats <laughs> famous historian george lucas famous yeah. historian george lucas <laughs> what about the war room so the war room i saw later and i saw that uh like after college i worked the 08 obama campaign um, and I, uh, I saw it after that campaign and then I was like, okay, so a lot of this tracks, especially because working Obama's campaign meant we were against Hillary Clinton and we got some of the same, like kind of dirty tricks, mm. uh, that we saw in the, uh, 
the war room, except it's a yes. little more muted there. But yeah, it was fun times. There are a couple things I want to ask you about specifically that we'll get into later where like I was watching the war room in particular and I was like, I wonder if it's really like this or like a thing would happen. And I was like, is this is this the documentary? Is this part scripted? Is this so I'm I'm really glad that you're not only coming to us with these two films, but uh, the campaign experience as well, because the the reputation that campaign managers have in America, I feel like, uh, has changed a lot over the last 30 years. Yes. Um, and I think the war room did a lot to help influence like our perspective about like what campaign work is and why a lot of young people after Clinton's, um, Clinton's, uh, campaign got involved in campaign work. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think that's, uh, that plus Cory Booker's documentary, uh, uh, street mm-hmm. fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those yes. Two definitely definitely created a you know a legion of annoying nerds of which i'm (laughs) yeah i mean you can definitely tell here there is sort of uh, in the war room specifically this very kind of glamorized ideal of like a kind of boots on the ground very sort of like populist appeal to this idea of working in a campaign room the late hours and you know the constant kind of frenzy and energy of it I just imagine, you know, like you're you're eating while you're walking and, and you know, never going to the bathroom. And it's just like this kind of crazy place of this constant energy. Uh, and, I, and I can't help but imagine that the war room is also something that sort of set a template for that vision for other creators who did fictional work, uh, specifically like in Aaron Sorkin and who did stuff like the West Wing in, in the coming years. Like, like this to me is part and parcel of that like like project to create this very sensationalized kind of romanticized ideal of like the the bootstraps and the like rolling your sleeves up and and getting the job done for your candidate yeah that's definitely like very true i it probably started with the kennedy doc which the name eludes me but there is a kennedy campaign documentary i think it's Mm -hmm. on hbo Mm. um I haven't seen it forever, but it's it's footage of the actual campaign workers doing their thing. And it's it's more focused on the campaign itself than any of the personalities. But it's definitely the whole like a sea of youthful enthusiasm trying to push something forward. Um, Yeah. Yeah, there's like a there's a very distinct project. That the war room has, which is to establish um politicians as like good people again like contrasting (laughs) very very directly with this kind of like old money like lizards in suits corruption and greed of like the reagan bush era um this documentary along with a lot of the other kind of like political media that we saw in movies i'm thinking very specifically of dave where like the president is like an actual literal (laughs) regular guy right is doing this work doing this work to to sort of um bring back character to politics in america yeah it's funny that that's kind of your and that was my read on it the first time i saw it uh, when I first saw the war room, but I will say like I did the recent rewatch and I was much, much more cynical. <laughs> it was so oh, much. Yeah. More. Oh yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you can see right through it 
Yes. Uh, but I can I I got the sense that that is the work that this this That's film what they're going for. You, you definitely like that is this was meant to be an inspirational documentary and you're totally on point about that. Yeah. You know, that for is sure. Like, you know. Um, the Stephanopoulos scene is possibly my favorite scene in the whole thing because it's the one where <laughs> I don't know why they kept it in when that they're trying to make an inspirational documentary. Yeah. And he's literally like, listen, I'm not saying you'll be added to the Clinton kill list if you <laughs> report about Bill Clinton. I'm just saying, you know, I can't do anything about what you report, but you know, will you be in the White House reporting? Will you not? I don't know. That's a, that's a, he <laughs> Yeah, it's that it's an incredible scene and we'll talk about it a little bit more later, but it's like you watch it and, and it's like at least at least be like original. This is way too like mob villain kind of you know, like, like this is this is straight out of a movie. Straight out of a movie. And that's it is why movie, you pay but, Stephanopoulos though. Know. So that's he's right. he's a mob villain. You don't pay him because he's a normal human being. Right. That's fair. <laughs> So let's let's get right into it and talk first and foremost here about the war room because I think that this one is definitely the most like mediated experience. It's certainly, uh, if if not like sensationalized, it's very curated. It's very deliberate in its stylization then and the way that it presents its two central characters. So, 1993, this film is released uh, after famous documentarian D. A. Pennebaker and his wife Chris Hedges uh, get really unprecedented but still limited access to a campaign. Uh, They requested to be in contact and in touch with Bill Clinton. They are denied that access um, and then decide after the the initial kind of convention that they are going to chronicle everything from Clinton's war room in Little Rock, Arkansas, and specifically through the eyes of two of its kind of leading guys, which is uh, James Carville, the Ragin' Cajun, and George Stephanopoulos, both of whom would later become these sort of like iconic figures in like democratic politics. Um, but this did a lot to sort of raise raise their uh, level of of import and and to kind of you know get them on that sort of trajectory towards being stars of the Democratic Party. And yeah, I mean, you can see why right away. Both of these guys are are really compelling figures. Carville especially, you know, like even for as cynical, I think, as the three of us are, and even like with with hindsight, you know, and being able to kind of know like how how perpetually Carville is wrong about things when it comes to his sort of brand of third way centrist triangulation that Clinton would adopt while he was in office he's utterly compelling and like he's very convincing he's a very uh i'll call it a performance it's a very compelling performance yeah i definitely um so i've met carville for the record uh Mm -hmm. just full disclosure um and his wife unrelated um (laughs) uh and i uh carville was one of the first guys that kind of like i i now have this developed it's like a tick almost where the more charismatic someone is, the more I hate them inherently. Like it just, (laughs) it's hard to explain, but it's the, it's the politician. Like, you know, the more endearing they are to the crowd, the better they are at the crowd work, the more I'm like, I don't want to be around you in any capacity. Mm -hmm. Um, You get like a revulsion to it because you know what's behind Mm -hmm. it. And even if you don't know the specific person, you just kind of start to learn like, the better they are at this, the less good they had to be at everything else, right? Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of, you know, the more they're allowed to get away with, yada, yada. 
So um, Carville is extremely charismatic and he's extremely persuasive and he's very good about doing the flare with the T-Rex thing. You know, you grab out the flare and then you just start waving it around and you throw it in the bushes. <laughs> but Jeff Goldblum goes to, to, you know, tells you to fuck yourself because he wants the glory and does it too. So, <laughs> right. That's, that's Carville's the whole thing is he can misdirect and move people around pretty well. Like he's very, very good at that. I think even the moniker Ragin' Cajun like does a lot of work to to sort of pitch us this idea of a politician that cares, right? Like like right. someone who works in politics that's impassioned enough to get angry. Contrasted very directly with like George Bush who always looks like he's fucking dead or asleep, <laughs> right? Like like sounds like he's barely gargling out a sentence every time he opens his mouth. So then you have a person like James Carville who is, you know, the face of this campaign along with a, a very handsome, albeit small George Stephanopoulos. So small. <laughs> so small, just a tiny little guy. Um, <laughs> and there is that sense of like, yeah, they're, they're impassioned because like they care, right? right? Like they, they are people that care about making this country better. Um, not necessarily like they're, passionate because they want to get the job done and be the best and like they're charismatic right and and as you said the the calculation that comes behind that charisma knowing how to flip it you know exactly on when he needs it and when he's talking to a reporter at CBS and he's giving them a story and he's turning on the charm or he's giving an impassioned speech to his you know tired and beleaguered um you know interns it's just like Yes, it's compelling, but the more you think about it, as you say, the more you realize it in and of itself is part of a calculated image. Uh, he drives me crazy so much because one of the reasons I had this kind of not great feeling around him when I met him was um, was Mary, uh, was his wife. Mm -hmm. um, be, and this gets kind of addressed in the documentary. And you see her on screen several times, you know, talking, uh, talking all sorts of smack about Bill Clinton. Yep. <laughs> um, and he does this whole kind of like people are like, well, should I really trust you if like you literally are married to a Republican operative? And he kind of he was like, well, there's a brother and he uh, he, he in Pennsylvania and he lived 20 miles away from his brother and they both would vote to cancel each other's vote out. And, you know, it, it's like. <laughs> Right, but you're not fucking your brother. <laughs> and like you don't have a choice who your brother is. You have said I align with this person enough to marry them. This is but that's to that's traditional carvel. Like it if you don't really examine it and you just oh yeah, okay, like it it's waffle house wisdom. It works perfect mm -hmm. if you're like a little hungover and you're drinking coffee and you don't think about it <laughs> much. Yeah. One of the things that I noticed, you know, on this watch, and I, I've seen this one a couple of times, it was definitely, it had the same effect on me that it, it may have had on you, Grim, like at an earlier point in your life when I saw it, I was a impressionable, you know, like more liberal than most like Midwestern teenager. And I was like, this is sexy. Like this is, this is the cool stuff. Like this is, this is how politics should be run and has this kind of, you know, all, all the appeal that, that it tries to, it worked on me. It, it did a number. Uh, but the t this time watching it, I, I noticed how kind of fucking scary Carville can be and like how much yeah. 
his like kind of thing is like rooted in sort of like shaming people and like criticizing their behavior constantly. He he does this thing with deflecting away from what are honestly I think like pretty fair criticisms of his candidate most of the time by you know just like finger wagging at the reporters and you know at one point he has like a really funny line where he says anytime anybody farts the word draft around here it's on the front page of your newspaper 10 times and we never talk about the other guy and any of his uh you know any of the promises he hasn't kept and he he just does this thing where he kind of gets going and and kind of snowballs and all of a sudden you realize that he's like he's not just like you know individually angry he's like angry at you he's angry at this right. person on the other end of the phone and kind of like talking down and yelling at them and it's it's kind of terrifying when you see it a, a couple times he is scary and he's not like a short short guy i think he's i think he's about my height so he's like six foot i'm i'm not six foot i'm five eleven but he is within the, <laughs> the tolerable range of my height from what i remember um and uh he uh yeah, he, he definitely has like an angry vibe. Even still, he has an angry vibe. Somebody who's been through a lot of tough elections is uh, James Carville, who's known as the Raging Cajun in the business. And uh, we'd like him to say a couple of words to you. Uh, you have a tough fight coming right down the stretch. It's going to come out that Roger Ailes is behind a lot of this stuff before the election that you've been seeing about Governor Clinton. Every time that somebody comes along that's got some ideas, a Democrat comes along, the Republicans come up here, and they ambush him. Remember Muskie? Okay, that is standard procedure. And here comes Clinton, he comes to New Hampshire, people here hurting, they want hope, they want somebody with vision, he gives it to them. So what do Republicans do? They get together with their wedge issues and they knock it off. If they succeed this time, it's gonna be every time you are never going to get a presidential candidate, okay? You're never going to get somebody to come up here and run for president that served 11 years as governor's got any kind of experience, okay? And every time somebody comes up, they're going to do it. If we win this, then you have knocked this shit back forever, okay? I'm glad you brought up the Mary Matlin thing. I I want to talk about it a little bit more for a second because I think that it's demonstrative in and of itself of not just Carville as a person, but of how all of these people are kind of just aesthetically different, right? Like they're, they don't actually believe in anything enough to make a marriage like Carville and uh, Matlin's um, unfathomable. Although I think that's a big change. I think that is an older way of thinking that has kind of gone away. Um, Mm -hmm. It's, and I would call that an improvement, um, but I can understand the argument. It's not an improvement, but I I think it's really a, a big improvement. No, I totally agree. I found the whole thing with Carville and Matlin to be, incredibly disturbing particularly when she spoke she's just repulsive and she seems (laughs) she seems incredibly nasty um and and i was just like i i found myself just sort of like pondering the implications of that as you said of of you know sort of what type of a person it takes to be um in a relationship with someone who believes vehemently 
against the things that you claim to believe in. Well, that's ultimately telling yeah. me that you don't actually, none of you are actually believe in anything. You're all sort of part of the same soup. Right. And it's like, uh, you know, there's a difference between like gradations of the same color and a totally different spectrum, you know, colors versus sounds. Like it's just, you know, Mary and him in terms of what they were proposing were radically different, even though Clinton's platform was terrible. And the idea that you just kind of be, especially because it wasn't like she was a marketer, you know, who right. got mm-hmm. swept into a campaign. She's been a long-term operative. He's been a long-term operative. And it does fundamentally show neither really cares about anything. Yes, completely. Well, they care about the check. The check is very important. Right. They care about the power. They care about the money. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yes. Betrayed, I think, a little bit in Carville's like final speech on, on the eve of the election. I know we're kind of jumping around here, but I want to stay on Carville while we can. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's convincing, you know, and he's, he has this kind of like tear filled speech where he's sort of like, you know, choking out words in between sobs. And it, you get the sense that like, yeah, he doesn't really believe in anything per se, except for the success of the campaign. And, and he kind of says as much, right. That he's like, we worked really, really hard. Yeah. And like, I've been doing this. I didn't go to Washington or, or, you know, I didn't go to these places until I was 32 years old. I didn't win a campaign until I was 43, 44 years old, something like that. And you realize like, oh yeah, this is, this isn't even really explicitly about like a person or like a once in a lifetime kind of candidate or a particular ideology. It's about, I finally win a campaign. I finally, I finally did the thing that I wanted to do for like this sort of almost sense of like self aggrandizement. Yeah. It's like comparable to a teenager winning time crisis three at the local movie theater. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't matter. The, the trail of dead bodies in the game don't matter. It's the, uh, you got the ending, uh, you got the ending video and you can brag to your friends and you got your, you know, you know, JC on the, uh, I'm sure that never gave him a complex, but you got the JC <laughs> on the leaderboard at the machine. That's what he, yeah, right. absolutely. <laughs> Uh, let's talk about Stephanopoulos too a little bit. You know, he, as we mentioned, is a a more kind of diminutive figure, both physically and sort of in terms of the amount of space uh, he he occupies, like in in the movie and and kind of vocally, verbally. Uh, but he too has this very very strong way of like whittling down any sort of bigger, more complex idea to a really effective talking point yes. or a beat. And I think this is expressed like most uh, most kind of like explicitly and, and most remarkably in the aftermath of the debate. I think it's the first debate. It right. might be one of the later ones. But he doesn't even wait to hear the closing remarks from Bush. Yep. And he's running to like the other side of the of the, the venue in order to be the first one in front of the cameras. And he's like, all right, our, our point is that uh, Bush was against the ropes. We had him against the ropes the entire time. That's the talking point. Just keep saying Bush was on the ropes. And this sort of like conviction that like if you say it enough times to the to the right people and in front of a big enough audience, it's going to inevitably become true. Yeah, I mean, Bush did not do well in that debate. I, I have watched every single televised presidential debate that has ever existed. Um, <laughs> Uh, just like I've listened to almost all of the Nixon tapes that are public. Right. Yep. Um, that we know. Uh, Stephanopoulos is a little worm and he's very good at it and he knows what he's doing. 
Um, he is correct, though. If you keep saying George H.W. Bush was on the ropes over and over again, it's going to get into the brains of the actual people, both doing the editing and speaking on TV. And it is going to like that will be a framing someone will pick up, even if it's not necessarily the grand framing. People, you know, people like on the ropes. They like these metaphors and these simple sound bites. And you're you're serving it up to them ahead of time. You know, mm-hmm. it's very effective. Um, Bush did do poorly that debate relatively, but it was like he kind of did poorly most of the election because he lied about raising taxes. And that mm-hmm. was that it wasn't any of the horrifying things or the potential ex-president he may have uh, had murdered. Uh, right. He lost that election <laughs> because of uh he said, I won't raise taxes. And then it was like, well, we need to raise taxes or we'll default on bonds. And he was like, guess we got to raise taxes because it would be horrifying <laughs> if I didn't. And people were like, no, fuck you. You can yeah. see, listen, you can dome as many like dudes from Massachusetts as you want, but you better not raise my taxes 2%. <laughs> oh, God, it's so true. <laughs> I, was, I, I, I was pointing that out to, to Carly. That was like, you know, they keep talking about all of the failed campaign promises of of Bush, but like they never bring up like why he was in Dallas in November of 1963. Like no one ever says, why don't you ask? Why don't you ask him what he was doing there? Excuse me. We don't know he was in Dallas. He was in Houston two days prior and there happened to be a travel <laughs> voucher for a car rental from him going from Houston to Dallas. Thank you very much. Stop speaking look, unverified facts. Look, right. we're just... We're just worried about our taxes here. Right. That's all that really matters. <laughs> Putting an asterisk on all of this, uh, you know, don't don't quote us on any of it. We we don't have all the facts. I do think, though, you're bringing up something really important, Grim, which is this kind of like I- I'm going to keep coming back to the West Wing because I think yeah. that the War Room <laughs> is is very directly responsible for that series. This this thing of like Stephanopoulos being this guy who can come up with a soundbite, who can sort of, you know, uh, distill a whole two and a half hours hours of garbage into, you know, five seconds of camera time that shifts public opinion for weeks on, on after that is this like kind of like West Wing mentality of how to politic, right? Where yeah. it's like like politics live and die by like the syntax of a sentence and not in the actual like projects or like policies of of a of a potential candidate that like you can literally change history by the way you phrase something and and Carvel and Stephanopoulos several times throughout the film are seen literally spitballing, just like trying this thing, this thing. No, no, no. Okay. Let's, how about we say this first? No. How about Carvel has this line where he just says over and over again, he says, I just think he reeks of yesterday. And he's talking about Bush and he's saying like, we got to get that in there. We got, we got to get this idea of yesterday in there that he reeks, that he stinks of yesterday. And I, I feel like this particular cultural artifact has a lot to do with that yeah this does you're a thousand percent right aaron sorkin 100 percent own this on vhs there's zero <laughs> doubt in my mind yes uh, i would be shocked if the character sam seaborn in the west wing was not based entirely on stephanopoulos completely yeah. on and stephanopoulos it seems so obvious in terms of their backgrounds and i mean it just it really feels right on the nose. I don't know if this will be like 
like any like revelatory at all, but what you're talking about with Carvel and stuff, um, it reminds me of the fashion industry. There's yes. something about being able <laughs> to put your pulse on a trend and kind of guide the winds a little bit, the extra two, three percent that are the difference between you and like Walmart. Like that's yes. an important ability in these realms. And uh, I've done it. I've been that little weasel uh, more times <laughs> than uh, more than half my life now, Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> but it's definitely um, it's skill. And, um, you know, whether it's good or bad is a whole different discussion, but it's definitely the way that Aaron Sorkin specifically processes politics being done is messaging to the media and nothing else. Yep. Um, and I mean, Aaron Sorkin hasn't had to care about anything other than messaging to the media for the last 30 years of his life. You know, a few good men came out, (laughs) you can't handle the truth became the first meme to ever exist. And he was good to go. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the meme so before true. memes. It, it's worth noting at this time, another movie from the uh, Clinton cinematic universe, um, <laughs> which is way more vast than you'd think. You got the hunting of the president. You got uh, primary <laughs> colors. You got oh my gosh. Um, DVD evidence. One nine nine seven four from the Epstein trial. Uh, oh my the God. Clinton <laughs> cinematic universe is vast, but uh, that's a joke, by the way, that number is random. I hope no one Googles it. Just made that shit up. But um, yeah, it's videotape of him. So, uh, (laughs) but uh, no, the primary colors came out and everyone hated it. Like Mm. it was widely reviled um, as a, as a movie. And if you watch primary colors now, you'll be like, this is hilarious. And this is spot on. Like this knows who Bill and Hillary Clinton are a thousand percent. Completely. It's so good on that front. So yes, this is like the time period was like, now is not the time to shit on idealism and shitting on these campaigns was seen as shitting on idealism because they tied themselves to youth. And once you do that, Mm -hmm. that's a powerful thing to have working in your favor. Yeah, Stephanopoulos was really important for that that sort of like youth frequency. There are all these kind of cultural references to him after they win this campaign. Mm-hmm. One I'm thinking about in particular is a Friends episode yep. when Rachel. Oh yeah, they they want to fuck him. They want to <laughs> fuck him so hard. They're they like, really I want to fuck a guy whose hair looks like a wig. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like one of the first Friends episodes. Like it's like season yeah. one stuff. Yeah, it is. Um, but he was a sex symbol and he, you know, I think he was maybe like what, 36 when he was the, the media director of this campaign, he was quite young and had an incredibly important position in, in the national political landscape, just an incredible amount of power for someone that, that age. And then of course, you know, in, in Clinton's later years, you have rock the vote, which I definitely remember watching on MTV. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, it goes back to this distinction that the Democrats were trying to make from this old, like sort of bastion of greed and and corruption that that the Republicans had, that they were different, not just because of, you know, the things that they believe in, but because they were cool. They're like, just like you and me. Right. And I'm thinking also specifically about the extramarital affairs of Clinton himself mm. as actually wait he did ulti- what <laughs> he like <laughs> breaking he fucks some ladies but that that ultimately like 
kind of supported this project, this image. It's the draft stuff is amazing with him because they keep like saying like, well, why don't they bring up the the HW, you know, yada yada side? And of course, the answer with HW is like HW joined the military and was like a national figure slash like war hero, like and you know, in the one good war we had. But uh, still, um, yeah. he got that status, um, which obviously gave him the right to you know remove the skull of any Irishman who got in his way. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I just a vague reference. But uh, no, he uh, the HW thing. It's like, well, he actually went to war and like he wasn't literally in England protesting a war. Although you you would think like, you know, how how much uh, like that. The problem is they couldn't just say it. And he kept lying about it. And he kept saying, I didn't dodge the draft. And part of that is he would have lost more percentage if he had admitted to dodging the draft. My, my parents are left of like the vast majority of Democrats and would never vote for Bernie Sanders because he was a conscientious objector. Mm, a thousand interesting. percent. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so, they knew it, right? That's why it was never a, right. a confirmed talking point. Yeah. You know, and he also did some really shady stuff. He like joined ROTC and, in, in uh, I can't remember. I think Yale. He he was like joining the ROTC Yale to get off the draft list. And like he never actually joined ROTC. He like announced his <laughs> intent to in England, um, which is all very funny. It's like the one cool thing Bill Clinton ever did is like yes! the draft, but yeah. it wasn't cool at the time. <laughs> no. Could, right. Incredibly unpopular. I yeah. I always think about the scenario where you go back in time and you tell HW like, hey, did you know that Bill Clinton oh, – crossed a picket line on his first date with Hillary Clinton, because that would have switched the 92 election over because crossing picket lines back then was still kind of a big deal to a lot of Democrats. Yes. Yes. <laughs> now it's fashionable because uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce do it. Right. So it's like, you know, well, it's those fucking white workers making 40 grand a year on their high horse, oppressing the, uh, the scabs willing to make $12 an hour. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> right. What, you know, that's interesting to think about, you know, just the way that the Democratic Party and like that whole apparatus has figured out how to weaponize identity politics and how it's like the one thing that they don't really do in one of the most like dramatic spin moments in in the war room, which is when Carville's trying to orchestrate this uh, breaking scoop with CBS when they find this videotape uh, that runs on Sao Paulo. <laughs> Uh, news where they believe that they have found a factory that is printing uh, George H.W. Bush uh, signs and, and merchandise in Brazil away from American factories. And of course, you know, their their whole uh, bent and angle on it is, you know, this this outsourcing, this like uh, sending jobs to, to other countries and, and to, you know, like using campaign finances to to. Uh, to, to pay off people who aren't Americans and all this stuff. But none of it is about like labor exploitation. They also like, I mean, it's, it's funny in retrospect, just thinking about like all the shit that Clinton would do, you know, with like NAFTA and everything and like his legacy. But it's, it's a, a pretty fascinating little moment where you see Carville just like, just like clawing with his like fingernails for any little like moment or any little bit, a little ounce of like, 
drama, like a scoop that they can use to fuck with with Bush. Yeah, it, and it's even funnier in the context of Carville then drafted pro because uh, so NAFTA was agreed to under H.W. Bush, right? This was Reagan right. started, H.W. agreed, and uh, and Clinton finally signed it. And mm-hmm. the signing portion that Clinton did, right, uh, the the when he finally authorized it, which union workers voting for him in 92, 100% did not think he was going to sign NAFTA. They thought he was – he didn't have those talking points to my knowledge, but he definitely um, – that was definitely the uh, the mode. Um, he uh, the talking point was we're going to improve labor conditions in Mexico, and this is how we do it because we can have lawsuits with Mexican courts. And of course, none of that happened. It just empowered the maquiadoras. Every time something actually involved in uh, labor suits come to the uh, the NAFTA courts, which I've actually been like a participant of for. A variety of reasons and a nonprofit I used to work with with a bunch of nuns. Whenever it comes to a vote, the first thing they do is the the U.S. government basically buys it out. They say, "Oh, you lost money because uh, you're violating labor standards. We'll we'll pay the fee, so it won't have to. We won't have to create a legal precedent that you're not allowed to oppress your laborers. Also, they often just kill all of them." And then they'll be like, well, huh, nothing to happen here. And maquiadoras are obviously controlled by the cartels in Mexico. It's a whole complicated thing. But in short, NAFTA has never been used to enforce any kind of labor standards in any capacity. But you had Carville selling it as that, you know, like at the time. This is how we're going to push for labor standards in, in Mexico. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's very Carville. That's right on the point. Read it to me. Well, what is names address? I can send you a fax with names, addresses, phone numbers of, of who you had an affair with. It wouldn't make it true. Yeah, I just, uh, believe me. No, it wasn't, but I'm just going to tell something, bitch. Believe me that it's been looked at by every major national news organization. Everything. And it is completely bullshit. If you went on the radio and said that Bill Clinton is uh, the father of an illegitimate black child, you would be laughed at. People would think you're crazy. We're not going to lose. We are going to win. He is going to be president. Well, no, but I mean, don't think of it like that. Think of, let's take it at two levels. Number one, of course, it's not going to matter. But number two, think of yourself. I guarantee you that if you do this, You'll never work in democratic politics again. Maybe you don't want to. I'm not saying it matters. You will be embarrassed before the National Press Corps. People will think, nobody will believe you. And people will think you're scummy. There's also a, a, a very fervent gust of meritocracy that just blows through this whole film. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we all know now to be really a, a defining conceit of of 90s politics and and of sort of popular culture the 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 conceit that if you just work hard enough all of the material conditions that may be holding you back won't actually matter um is really like beautifully exercised and put on full display 
by these two characters in this film. And I'm thinking also of Carville's speech, his teary-eyed speech at the end of of the campaign when he's talking to this room full of young, hardworking uh, Ivy Leaguers <laughs> who are there solely on merit, I'm sure. Um, and he says that uh, that sort of story about the golfer that's talking about, oh yeah, I'm right. like I'm not lucky. I I I'm I just practice a lot. I'm butchering it. What does he say? He says, uh, "I'm exceptionally lucky." Uh, the more I the more I practice, the harder I work, the more lucky I get. And I mean, yeah. that's it right there. Right. And and Carvel goes on to talk about how hard he's worked to get to where he is. And now he's you know, he's finally here. And and it's been one of the most important experiences of his life. I think that's a brilliant point And all like summed up, like totally just straight, and narrow, correct. Uh, the only thing I would uh, add to it at all. Um, would be they like Carvel's skill there is realizing that the language everyone now understands in America is money equals equality and power. Mm. And he's speaking in the vernacular people understand. Yeah. People, people, the government's going to give me healthcare. What? Like, like <laughs> school could be free. That's not a thing that exists anywhere. The amount of people, by the way, in 1992 who thought like no place in the country has or no place in the world has free uh, universities or whatever would probably be a majority. It, it, like mm. literally just that much like it, like the the bar was so low and their, the understanding of anything international pre everyone having the Internet was so so limited that Carvel got to kind of take advantage of that and be like. Everyone understands money helps you do things. And ideally you get more money, the harder you work. And he, he, the synergy he made with those two concepts, just like you're saying is perfect. Yes. Frictionless sphere in a vacuum. as the (laughs) physics nut would say. Let's talk about uh, Jennifer flowers a little bit, who shows up at the very, very beginning of this documentary. We see the press conference, uh, I have to say, by the way, that name like came from Central Casting. I know it's her real name, but holy shit! If <laughs> someone yeah. handed me that over in the script, I'd be like, "Flat!" Like he took her flower. flower really? Flowers. Really? It's <laughs> so like Melrose Place. It's so good. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's so, Melrose so good. Place. It, it, it is very Melrose Place, and considering it's 1992, not a bad place to be. Like, yep. <laughs> uh, so Jennifer Flowers, we see her at the very beginning of this documentary. I think it's maybe all said and done in like a, a you know hundred minute movie, uh, maybe like six minutes of total runtime dedicated to this like uh, to this woman giving her statements and and claiming that she had this relationship with Bill Clinton. They found these recordings of tapes that it totally implicate and and incriminate him. And uh, those are know, fake. Were they that? No, that was the line they said at the time is these tapes have been (laughs) manufactured and edited. No, they really like fully denied it. They were like these tapes. And it turned out like the editing quote unquote was like, they took out the greeting and they said, well, that counts as editing. If you take out the, Hey, how you doing? Ah, show me your dick. Like it, 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 it's, it's very much like no one would count that as editing, but that was the line they put out and it worked. I mean, it, it is pretty incredible the way in which they were able to. And, you know, I, I 
I don't know that I give Pennebaker and and Hedgedis like credit for this, you know, but but the way that it presents and the way it plays with, you know, 2022 eyes is that uh she is effectively erased from any consideration of the campaign and also from the movie, right? It it doesn't come up again because it's just yet one more thing that uh that this campaign and that these people need to learn how to kind of, you know, slick themselves up and and grease themselves out of the hold and and bob and weave away from and and just, you know, kind of juke. And they do. They do very effectively and and they get out of it. And then we don't hear about it again for the next 90 minutes of the movie. She's that bitch getting in the way of my guy winning. Completely. There's there's that terrible reporter that asks her when she's, you know, standing in front of hundreds of people, did uh, the governor wear a condom? And like, I my heart just broke. I was watching her face and I was like, I would have I would have broken down screaming if someone asked me that i'm i'm here like standing in front of all these people doing something incredibly terrifying uh regardless of whether or not i'm i'm getting money for it and someone's basically like lol sit down like it it, it's just um yeah it's not new or surprising right like this is something that's happened for a very long time and and despite knowing the way that the media handled Jennifer Flowers, because I I remember it at least sort of vaguely as a child, I was still just like really horrified by it. Um, and the film doesn't linger on it at all. It's literally just in there for legitimacy because a campaign documentary of the 92 campaign that didn't include Jennifer Flowers would be seen as straight up propaganda. It would yep. be yeah. seen as unacknowledged propaganda. Um, and uh which is kind of sad all on its own um american crime story did a whole season on clinton and i got my problems with it but the one message they really drove forward and everything that happened that i actually was like okay this is this is good this is a good framing of everything that happened is being a woman in the context of the nineties and being near Bill Clinton and also having any kind of issue was a death sentence in terms of like your career, your morality, your personal safety, your, your consideration, your privacy. It was just, it was not a good time to be a woman. Yeah. And um, their lives got ruined. Every one of them, Linda Tripp, Monica Lewinsky, all of them. And you can talk about how much their decisions played a part, but there's no denying that a man making similar decisions would not have been perfectly fine and been completely unruined. And it's just, it's not debatable. The fucking guy who was like the rent boy for Barney uh, Frank in like 1988, despite being gay, didn't have the kind of issues that like Monica Lewinsky and Linda Tripp ended up having. Yeah. Right. You know, and um, in the 90s, it was a different beast. And I that's an important message here. There's four other calls that they're responding to from journalists who are like, you want me to care about the fact that like he's throwing eyes in an elevator and it just keeps coming up. And it's like, dude, and this came out in 93. The idea was uh, the idea the documentary is trying to portray is they're coming after Bill Clinton and making up all these fake sex acts. He's yeah. He had one thing in his office. Believe me, it would be big news if there were all these women 
Uh, and I feel that history has verified that exact thing. He's been perfectly innocent and he's <laughs> definitely not a multiple rapist by any yeah, stretch. Right. For sure. Totally. totally. Total exoneration. And, you know, if we're talking about the way that this movie kind of propagandizes that and kind of uh, uses Jennifer Flowers in order to give a sense of validity to the project, they uh, reinforce, I think, the position of the campaign and maybe of the filmmakers, too, with what is one of the most striking scenes in the entire movie, uh, the the call that George Stephanopoulos (laughs) takes in the office. It's it's so good. It, it's unbelievable. And like I said earlier, you know, it's like it's it, it's it it feels scripted. Like it's as good as anyone could ever write one of those scenes in a movie. You know, like one of those you'll never work in this town again if you do if, this kind of things. If you got deep fake software and you replaced Steve Bannon with George Stephanopoulos and changed <laughs> the audio to them talking about Trump, people would be like, "Of course this is real." Yes. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, you know, so the accusation that we overhear seems like it it could be a little far-fetched, right? Because it hasn't come out in the intervening years. Who knows, right? But that the idea is that uh, Bill Clinton has uh, sired a, a uh, illegitimate black child and that they want to run this story. They want to they scoop it to somebody in the press uh, as they're nearing the, the end of the election cycle and, and getting to actual election day. And Stephanopoulos is so cold and calculated and exacting in the way that he does this. He hits all the perfect points. You know, (laughs) he has the, I'm not telling you what to do. You do whatever you want. Just know that, you know, like if you do this and you're wrong, uh, I can guarantee you'll never work in democratic politics again. Maybe that doesn't matter to you. Maybe you don't care to do that. But if you, if you do it and you're wrong, you'll be fucked. But if you, if you don't do it and you, and you, you know, go the other way with this. Just understand that there's, there's a campaign here that sees you and hears you and uh, will remember that you did the right thing when it came time. And it's just, it's so fucking sleazy. It's unbelievable. (laughs) It's so good. It's so on point. I, I appreciate the subtlety of the, like, listen, if you try to tank our campaign, people are going to learn. They're not going to take you seriously. You know, however that happens, happens. I mean, I don't know how much you care about your history and your future of the Democratic <laughs> Party. I have no control over that. It's just right. what people are going to think. But, you know, if and I can't promise anything specific, but like we like to work with right. people who are honest and tell the truth. And whether that's in the White House or in the 1996 campaign that we're going to follow up, who knows? Like, that's just, you know, I don't know the future. Do you, Confucius? Like, it's just so good. <laughs> Yeah, like a, a guy who actually has, you know, his hands on the levers of power that could ostensibly control how that person is viewed and like how much uh, abuse uh, that person faces for breaking that story is like. What can I do? If you do it, you do it. Like I, I, I can't stop what's coming after this. But uh, that's up to you. That's your choice. It's interesting. Like I, I know how beautifully cinematic it is, but it is interesting that a, uh, a film that is otherwise it feels like very kind of like, uh, like hagiography, uh, kept this scene in and decided to yes. like make this one of sort of like the, the punctuating kind of scenes of the entire movie. It's also worth noting that he was the campaign's media director, which meant he was probably going to be the press secretary, uh, and he became the White House communications director. So 
it the the weight of the threat was definitely in like understood he was going to be in charge of communications for the White House in some capacity. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It wasn't it, it wasn't coded at all, which makes it the lack of coding so like, you know, so much more funny because people would care at the time. I don't yeah. know anyone would care now. It would be like a story for a day if that. It also makes me think of like the fact that Carville and Stephanopoulos agreed to have these cameras, you know, follow them around and 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 be in the war room in the first place. I think on the surface can be seen as like really candid, right? Like really honest and um and transparent and again different than like the sort of deceit and like underhanded corruption of the Republicans um, coming before them. But we understand that like that, <laughs> that sort of like, uh, you know, miming of transparency, of, of candidness and, uh, and of openness and honesty is in and of itself an act of like curation and manipulation. It's, right. it's also them very strategically saying like, we're going to be the campaign that lets the cameras in, right? We're right. going to be the campaign that like opens our doors up. There's going to be a fucking movie about us. Mm. And that is also doing the work of enforcing to the public that these people are men of character. These people are um, good. They're good. They're hardworking. They're principled. And the shit that comes out of their mouth doesn't actually matter, right? Like, yes. like the 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 content of their conversations can ultimately uh, be swept under the rug because it's the fact that they were willing to do this at all that that really does the work that they're after. And I think it's, I think it's fucking brilliant. And I also think it just makes me even more cynical. Like it's it's <laughs> yeah. it's all part of it's all part of this manipulation, which is a. A nice tie-in to the next you one. You know, <laughs> it's so Stephanopoulos probably wanted the scene in himself. Uh, yeah. He worked Dukakis's campaign. If I'm not, mm, yeah, I'm like eighty percent certain he was a big wig in Dukakis's campaign. And one of the complaints was they weren't aggressive enough. Mm. Um, so I almost feel like he was doing his resume with that call. He was like, mm. he, there may not have been another person on the line. <laughs> 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 like legitimately, like he <laughs> may have oh he may God. have been talking to an empty phone to be like, I don't want to be that Dukakis bitch who lost forty eight states or whatever. Like, <laughs> I, I'm gonna be, yeah. I think you might actually be right about that. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, he, he just had like another campaign aide like call from the other room and right. was just like, rrr, rrr, rrr. oh my. Also, God. one of those like Esquire esque or GQ, just some kind of New York fashion mag did a thing with him that was like the exotic Greek. Like stepping up, oh. like he was like exoticized <laughs> for the purpose of making his career sound more like a triumph in '92 because of his like <laughs> the fact he's like the wrong kind of white person, right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's that's very much his his domain. And I think this brings us more or less to like the the end of this conversation about the war room, and and really the last thing I want to say about it is just that. You know, you you watch this and it it makes perfect sense in the way that these two characters are sort of like triumphed and, and lionized within the like 
hundred minutes of, of footage, why they were such ascendant stars within the Democratic Party. You really get a sense that they right. were they were very good at their jobs, even though their jobs are kind of fucking evil, you know. Uh, and I will say, you know, it's like Pennebaker and and Hedges, like they're great documentarians too. You know, they did primary, they did don't look back the the uh, Dylan documentary that's very famous. Like they have this very uh, distinct kind of cinema verite style. They just put a camera in a room. They don't give talking heads. They don't give voiceover. They they don't manipulate in that way. They just show you these kind of like little slices of life. And it is compelling. It's a, it's like a riveting movie. You watch it right. and, and before you know it, it's over and, and you have felt this whole slew of emotions. But yeah, I mean, the more you look at it, the more you realize just how much of that has been heavily curated and mediated to to elicit that exact response from us yeah i um i can uh probably someone who worshipped him was uh because i kept thinking about it when i was re-watching it was uh the director of uh jesus camp uh yeah. same deal no voiceovers uh it's all filmed uh it's all filmed completely like no questions. It's just, it's just straight filming what's happening. And on top of that, it was vetted by the people that were in the film. Like mm. all the people in mm. Jesus camp watched it beginning to the end. And they were like, stamp, sign a seal of approval. This is good. Oh, wow. Final <laughs> draft. Yeah. And they were like, this is what we believe. This is, uh, this is us being extremely normal. Uh, <laughs> who could possibly object to any of this? God. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it had that kind of vibe. It reminds me of that kind of vibe. Moving on to the second documentary uh, that we are covering today. Let's talk about Spin from 1995. This one done by a gentleman named Brian Springer. Who I don't know. If, I don't know if he's a visual artist first and foremost, or you know, works within media or what what his concentration and focus is. But uh, this is something else. Like this is this is next level kind of curation <laughs> of of this stuff. And and you know, it's it's a very similar kind of project. I feel like to the War Room in the way that the footage is compiled and then curated. But of course, his his hands are are much more firmly on the wheel and he's telling us this story and and contextualizing a lot of what we're seeing but the 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 key component of this movie is this sort of unmitigated access and as you already mentioned grim the fact that most of the people who are on screen have either no idea that we can see them or know and don't care and so are are you know just they're they're open valves in terms of their beliefs and what they want to talk about campaigning via the satellite tour allowed the candidates to cover long distances but there was another major benefit they could bypass the national tv networks there was no need to feed through the tv network center and on to the local stations the campaign was now the center and its own television network Another way the candidates made news was by creating their own TV news stories called the Video News Release. The Video News Release was given free of charge to local TV stations. Sent via satellite by the candidate, the Video News Release consisted of a campaign-produced TV news segment, complete with intro text for the local TV anchor to read, and a news story edited by the campaign. Nearly all the major candidates placed a Video News Release on local television, and nearly half the local TV stations which aired the releases 
didn't report that they had been produced by the candidate. For instance, this story's reporter, Michael Caputo, wouldn't be identified as working for the Bush campaign. Primaries March 17th. In Washington, this is Michael Caputo reporting. We should talk a little bit about the the way that this documentary came about. So Brian Springer uh, bought a couple of these satellites that are you know consumer products at this point, things that you can just buy, dishes uh, that you can set up and broadcast television into your home and realized that he was getting all of these raw satellite feeds from various news networks. Uh, So uh, figured out how to kind of like position these satellites to pick up specific feeds and just scrolled through the dial and picked up random instances and and recorded pretty much all of the calendar year 1992 Uh, and said that I think in the documentary, he claims that he walked away from that experience with something like 500 hours of total footage. And there's another documentary he's done that has a lot of that footage too, by the way, like it's. Uh, there's a completely separate documentary he's done that's this but less focused on this specific issue. Is it called Feed? Yes, Feed. Yeah, that came up when I was when I was reading about his background. Yeah. And they do the the bits and pieces of writing that I saw on it do describe it more as just kind of like raw, kind of like vomit of of uh, a raw sort of spew of of this uh, footage rather than what he's doing very meticulously in this documentary, which is um, really trying to illuminate the ways in which like American media manipulates every single thing we see. Yeah. He's definitely (laughs) way more hands-on in this one. And he's definitely like not being shy about his points, which I kind of appreciate the biases. So yeah, completely. And I mean, it really does hit you like a ton of bricks, you know, it, it starts, I would I, I want to say innocently that may not be a good word but innocently enough you know like we see some stuff that is behind the scenes we see some stuff that said kind of uh, offhandedly and and kind of candidly while uh, you know Larry King's getting set up on on his uh, show and and George H W Clinton whatnot but the more this sort of builds the more we realize that these like minor little asides of of candor and like openness uh, end up sort of yielding some incredible moments where we just kind of see like how big a kiss ass Larry King is to like all the different candidates. And like at one point even seems to be like trying to like pedal uh, like a a, a pharmaceutical drug to George H.W. Bush. (laughs) He sure is. Uh, (laughs) Out of Israel. Like, yeah, it's, it's insane. Um, And then we see, you know, we see Clinton raw footage. We see stuff with Tipper Gore and Al Gore. Um, This, Documentary also does one thing that is is noteworthy uh, for its glaring omission in the war room, which is talk at all about the fucking L.A. riots and about yes. like any of the conversation that was happening in the media about being tough on crime and kind of like law and order and, and that sort of stuff, which is completely uh, sidestepped in the war room in any capacity. Yeah, there's no mention even in the war room of Sister Soldier, if I'm not mistaken, like that's completely nope. absent. Yep, completely. So I, I don't really even really know where to start here. I guess, you know, there's so many like interesting moments. I guess one of the ones that I want to highlight is uh, the campaign of Larry Agron that we were already sort of alluding to, who is a, a Democratic <laughs> candidate. Your face just turning over and over again. <laughs> uh, one of these subplots. Incensed. So, 
just <laughs> utterly incensed. So I guess he's a he's a Californian, if I'm not mistaken, right? He he had like he was like a, a mayor of Irvine or something. Maybe not at this point, but somewhere yeah. later down the line. But ran a campaign, uh, I think, largely viewed as a significantly more progressive campaign than some of the other right. ones had had a a sort of had things to say about how to treat property and crime and urban centers and and how to build infrastructure had a lot of these kooky ideas that a, a left candidate crazy might have crazy ideas to put money into the infrastructure and away from the military right yeah he wanted to defund the military which is a big thing uh and this documentary through raw satellite footage shows uh how invisible he is how erased he is from all of like the national media coverage and not only that but the ways in which they're actually fucking him over deliberately where they're sort of making him promises and then uh not holding those promises not keeping those those uh, concerns in mind when it comes time for him to actually make his appearances on television right like the obvious and in one of the first ones they bring up is the no makeup they would not provide him makeup even though makeup was planned on spot and uh, at the time they knew about the public perception of the jfk versus nixon debates where nixon didn't have makeup and jfk did so nixon just looked like an oily mess and jfk looked like he was calm and cool and collected and it was really just a matter of the makeup and that this is like a great documentary for someone who doubts that like the media puts their thumb on the scale in any capacity. Yeah. You know, and it's, it does a good job of saying like, no, there's no central authority doing this. It's more of just like the media thinks a certain way and they need a certain story and you gotta like pick lanes and you gotta like edit out who you don't want. And that's very conscious, even if it's not a collective consciousness, it's everyone is consciously doing the same thing. The central authority is the status quo, right? Right. Like, Anything right. that comes in to even remotely send ripples in the lake, right? right? Like that thing has to be excised. That thing has to be literally erased. I, I'm I, I'm going to get just like melodramatic for a second. But like I was near tears watching the stuff with Larry Agrin because That's of how rough. angry I was. Like just as leftists, like... None of us are surprised by the idea that the media is a very direct line of coercion and manipulation from the state. That's not news. We know that. But seeing this man who just wants people's lives to be better, like literally in in big ways and in small ways, be completely fucking obliterated just made me so fucking mad so so mad there's that incredible sequence of all these yokels at the goddamn debate and larry (laughs) has stormed in and is yelling yelling because they have literally like erased him off of the ballot Mm -hmm. he's not even he's not even uh on the list of people let alone you know given a, a podium to to speak at and he's screaming and they're all just sort of waiting until he finishes his rant and then he gets arrested and then it's like his his court date was like on the exact date of the next major democratic presidential debate and it's a small detail but it's one of those things that just like 
really is like acid in the wound where you're like, oh yeah, all this fucking shit is connected. <laughs> like, like the courts are conspiring with, you know, the media, with like the powers that be to literally erase this man off of the ballot. I think the important part there is that they are not really conspiring. They all independently agree and that's why they're there. Yeah, yes, I think that's precisely. important. Chomsky, there's no Slack channel that they were in, yes. but they all think <laughs> right. the same way, which is why they were in the places they were. Yes, and, and right. working together um, harmoniously without, you know, without the the communication to do so or, or the right. uh, the sort of explicit uh, partnership to do so. Uh, yeah. A great example is if you asked people what they would like, what would you describe uh, Barack Obama's like greatest skill is? Most people would probably say like speaking, like public speaking. And um, he literally had to do tons of training on it. Like it, he spent insane amounts of money for the 2004 uh, keynote speech because everyone said it was too boring. Because until he had the context of the media lifting him up and, and liking the way he spoke, um, it wasn't really something anyone was into, you know, mm. it, like it, 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 so they kind of fit, they kind of, and, and Republicans kind of picked up on that and got weird about like, oh, he's got a teleprompter as if every president doesn't, but <laughs> yeah. they were picking up that thread. That's right. You know, and yeah. th- there was a little there, there where he, He's very controlled and measured in a way that most people would find off-putting outside the context of who he is specifically and yeah. the context that was created for him. You also see those moments where they mention, you know, and, and Springer kind of does his voiceover to let us in on this, but that Agrin couldn't get more coverage because the news networks deemed him unfit for news because of his lack of coverage. And yes. then uh, he's denied a podium at a debate, an independent debate, I think even like not one that's held by like a major network. It it's like oh, it's like on, a women's coalition. It was or something. put on by the League of Women's yeah. Women Voters. League of Women Voters, who uh, denied him the privilege of of being on stage because he hadn't accrued a certain amount of airtime. And you just yes. see the way all of these coordinated different efforts, like you know, go a long way to sort of uh, like just remove visibility entirely like you know you, you you need one form to get the other form but you can't fill out that form until you've had the other form and just this kind of like cyclical way of just keeping somebody out who doesn't who isn't deemed worthy of belonging in yeah it requires a level of institutional bureaucracy to handle and manage that is larger than the actual job itself requires yeah which is kind of ironic considering it's like to be president <laughs> um, but it's also like true like the, yeah. the institutions are there for the president but in this case for some reason you need way more people and way more staff and way more like managerial competence in order to jump all these hoops and you know whether or not the hoops are in front of you is based entirely on like ideology and how do you fit in the storyline yes you know um so, but yes, Agrin gets the kiss of death. He gets the you're not serious kiss and everyone just agrees. Springer does a great job in the beginning of the film setting up exactly what it is he was working with. And he basically says, this is satellite footage that is just running on a feed that is untouched and unpackaged by the network. So like I'm getting it before the network, the networks have had their their chance to get their hands on it and package it up as a thing. And he's telling these stories with it. And 
what I found myself thinking about was how much effort is put into the the uh, the idea and and the result that politics are a spectacle that like right. that's v- very handedly mm-hmm. something the media creates. Um, yeah, and and we see that you know quite literally with the war room and. Springer makes a really great point here when he's talking about the role that these shows, particularly Larry King Live and some of these yeah. other some of these other um, news shows, the role that these shows played in shaping public opinion. He he makes some remarks. Springer does um, at some point and says that the the revenue that they made off of advertising. Um, in and around like debate content actually made them more money than it cost for them to even do the reporting on the debate. And 92 was the first year for that. And I, this is the most prophetic thing he like has captured is he has this gem of this is the transition between campaigns being nonprofit events and for-profit events. Yes. And he doesn't really dig in too far because the documentary came out like 95, 96, something like that. Mm -hmm. But he it's weird how important that definitely becomes, especially in the 2000s era blogosphere. You know, also, if we're talking about Larry King Live, this is an, another point, which is it's interesting why how that show found so much purchase because it's the closest thing to like a democratized event that anyone could experience within the the context of network cable, right? This This predates sort of a like you know, back and forth kind of sender receiver model of communication that we have now, like on Twitter and other social media apparatuses. Uh, and, and, you know, you could call in, you could ask questions, you could like hear your own voice and you could uh, take polls from the audience. Like it, it was all that stuff that gave you this sort of sense that you were part of the conversation and dictating policy and the conversations that policymakers were having because your voice could be heard. Yeah. And um, Larry King, I actually liked Larry King on a lot of stuff in terms mm-hmm. of non-politics because I think he's a he's a decent interviewer because his whole thing is he kind of lulls you into a sense of comfort and then he you know and then he'll ask you a weird question to try and take you off base and go from there <laughs> yeah but because of the the you know thumb on the scale for the political side that's always hard although I do not think we should refer to the show as Larry King live anymore that, that feels like a year expired so. <laughs> fair <laughs> totally fair oh, R.I.P. Uh, well, maybe, I don't know who knows. Uh, <laughs> there's another moment, uh, that is with a, I don't even remember what his title is, but he he's a gentleman talking about, uh, healthcare. He was it, a doctor. He's a doctor. That's yeah. right. Do- Dr. Bill or something they say, right. Uh, talking about healthcare specifically in South central Los Angeles. And this is all the conversations that are happening around the LA riots in 1992 after the, uh, decision, uh, that exonerates the officers after the the Rodney King beating. And he mentions on air, and th- this is, I, I, I think, you know, kind of psychotic enough, but mentions that South Central's, uh, th- that the, the hospitals there have a trauma ward that's so active that they send military personnel there to learn how to treat bullet wounds. And that makes it onto air, which is already like a staggering, you know, a right. bit of knowledge. Uh, but, the thing that he says off air that is like I think called I think they say it's too obtuse or or too glib or something to to be put on air. He mentions to the reporter, 
places like South Central, these impoverished kind of centers of of despair and crime and and violence in America are like third world countries, but they don't have any hope because there's no active development taking place. Right. That, they're that not he developing, actually, they're developed. Right. And that like he actually sees them as as inherently like worse places, just like in terms of the atmosphere that those places drive and the way it would would feel to grow up in and around those places than if they were in a developing third world nation. That these are like the worst places he's seen. And it's like it's a remarkable bit of candor and honesty from this guy uh, that you just obviously you don't hear on television. Yeah. Well, and it's, it takes place before his like bullet clinic thing. Right. Which uh, I think mm-hmm. is important. Um, he says like that and they're like, yeah, that's too obtuse. That's too, you know, stick to the facts, sir. And, you know, um, by the way, the <laughs> John Hopkins bullet clinic is in Dayton, Ohio for the exact same reason, because if you want to see a whole bunch of people shot, that's where you go if you you aren't looking for the closest place to Baltimore. Um, yeah, think about how bad your city's gun violence has to be that they're traveling away from Baltimore because you got more people getting shot. Um, anyway, but yeah, no, it, the uh, it's the same kind of principle, and um, it's so obvious how everyone's thumbs are on the scale and how it. Um, they they're all an ideological concurrence, but it's not organized. It's just simply their bosses thought the same way and their coworkers think the same way. And there's mm-hmm. no real getting around that fact that if you don't think that way, they kind of don't think you're serious, no matter what you can bring to the table. This, this segment on the LA riots, I think is where Springer's background as an artist and an artist in media specifically is, is really important because he talks about, framing framing sort of narratively but also framing visually of the riots and how they were covered and he talks about all these helicopters sort of sweeping above above ground like high in the sky shots of of los angeles cityscapes rather than sort of like down in the violence and he also talks about how the reporting that was done on the ground was also done at a distance, just sort of moving, you know, along the sides of the crowds, not ever speaking directly to the protesters, um, just kind of describing what they were seeing in in talking about this framing, this this visual and narrative framing that the media was doing. He makes this incredibly powerful point about the media's. I won't even just say complicity, their sort of active role in misinforming the public and obscuring information from the public, um, not only to, you know, influence a certain political outcome, but also to really downplay the very real violence that was happening next to, you know, down the street from many, many people. And, yeah. I just think I think that point in particular is is really important in the film because this is where he I think really shows that it isn't just sort of happenstance, right? That it is like a uh, a very concerted material project by the media. Right. 
Yeah, and it's it, it's like the effect of multiple pieces of ideology kind of coming together. Um, mm. I have no doubt that this kind of framing, because it done independently, but is part of why Hillary Clinton did the whole super predator speech. You know, like yep. it's. Yep. I don't think these things are unrelated. I think she was going based off of what she saw, and that's what was being told. And people were curating a message, and um. These things mattered and they definitely shaped how like Gen Z thinks and all mm -hmm. that, which is why, you know, Matt Iglesias just put a thing the other day that was like, you know, we need to ban boomer politicians. And I am firmly against that because then that means we got like Gen Z or Gen X <laughs> and oh, Gen yeah. X is so much worse than the boomer politicians. Oh yeah. oh yeah. Yeah. We've talked about that on this show actually. We, we've covered some Gen X thinkers before. We did a deep dive on Chuck Klosterman's book about the nineties and his sort of like survey of what he thinks happened and why. Uh, and it is, uh, it's not good. Go Gen X thinker is my favorite oxymoron now. <laughs> yeah no absolutely. no thinking just vibes just just, just vibes. literally that entire book is just like yeah things may have materially actually been this way but this is how they felt and so, so that's felt and so that's what's true about it right yes. uh and and i mean that is yeah that is exactly what the gen x sort of like ideology is and and how much of uh media informed that is is very clear before Clinton was shooed into office, he had to compete against a host of other Democratic candidates. The media focused on four of these candidates, but Larry Agron was a fifth candidate the press did not report on. There's no makeup here? During the 1992 U.S. Conference of Mayors, the New York Times reported that, quote, dozens of mayors seem to agree on one thing. The single candidate who truly understands urban needs is Larry Agron, unquote. They promised to bring this stuff over. None of the networks mentioned Agron's presence at the convention. One of Agron's staff had to run over to the Super Saver and buy some makeup because the network had broken its promise to provide it. This was typical of the media's treatment of Agron. When he appeared at this Democratic candidate's forum, this Associated Press photo simply cropped Agron out of the frame. During the New Hampshire primary, the TV news reported the polling numbers of the top five Democratic candidates, Brown, Clinton, Harkin, Kerry, and Songus. When Agron moved into a three-way tie with Harkin and Brown with 2% of the vote, most of the TV news didn't mention Agron. The day Bill Clinton captured what may have been the most valuable airtime of the entire election as he spoke to 50 million viewers about his alleged affair was the same day that a poll showed Agron's support at 4%. He had passed Brown and was the fifth leading candidate. When ABC's Sunday Evening News reported this poll, they simply deleted Agron entirely by not reporting his candidacy. Moving on to a couple of other like key moments in the documentary, I don't have much to say about uh, the the Pat Robertson and like Jerry Falwell stuff and everything. Pat Robertson can burn <laughs> in hell. Yeah, I mean, this is what I was going to say: is that like you know, Pat Robertson is a ninety-two-year-old man. He's still kicking, still making like billions of dollars with his enterprise. Jerry Falwell, like you know, uh, made this sort of like career resurgence and got all that money so that his shithead son could do creepy shit and have like his weird like uh, orgies on his yacht or whatever like they did all that by like on the backs of AIDS victims and and gay people and and all of this shit and just like creating uh just a, a, a 
entire kind of culture of radical like evangelicism and like and oppression they're going to die in old age i hope that it's as prolonged and painful a death as possible and even that will be too much fucking mercy for any of these people like i hope there's a hell just for them like that that, that's really it that's all i have to say about (laughs) those guys uh but beyond that you know we we go back to and talk about larry king a little bit um and mostly, you know, like I, I mentioned before, it, it's just funny to kind of watch him be a kiss ass, you know, like yes. for someone who's supposed to be kind of like a, a straight and narrow kind of like you said, interviewer and, and good at the tough questions when they matter. Uh, just the way he like butters everybody up beforehand and, you know, his right. little sides to Al Gore where he's like, when, when we run out of time, you know, you should you should invite me on the campaign bus. Just just do that little thing. Uh, the, the, the one that I was most taken by is the conversation with Bill Clinton. Uh, off microphone where he says, you know, like, just, just so you know, if you win the election, my boss, Ted Turner, he really likes you. I think he's going to be pretty good to you. What, what else he's keep, what has he got to lose? He's, I I have a feeling that you two will have a really good relationship with this network. Uh, and, and that is like one of those moments of just, you know, we, we all know about like the, the inherent partisanship of a CNN and an MSNBC and a Fox news and all that shit. But like it's it's just funny to hear them so blatantly say it. Oh yeah, and if like if Ted Turner was Jewish, the Groypers would have that clip on repeat all the time. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, because it is really the like the media apparatus literally being like, oh yeah, the media likes you, and that's why you're doing well. So don't forget to pay fealty when you're on the other end of this equation, right? Yep. Um, yeah. Gosh, it's geez. I'm just thinking about that. It's also worth noting these are the years of like Larry King Live where uh where Tara Reed called in. These the, this is the same yeah. time period where she mm-hmm. or her mother, I'm sorry, called in mm-hmm. and was like, Yeah, my daughter got like assaulted by someone who's really powerful and I don't know if I can talk about that. Yeah. You know, but honestly, like, you know, fuck her for having planting that story 20 years ago, knowing that seed would eventually sprout in a presidential campaign, completely yeah. fabricated and <laughs> not a real. lot of a lot of uh, destruction she was able to do ultimately. Right. right. You know, P- just P- some, Putin's hands just you totally know, snuffed out Vladimir Putin's That's hands right. at work uh, from from, you know, all the way back then. It just like just right at the 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 end of the soviet union he's been manipulating it all along yeah through his agents in our in our country <laughs> it is fun how much the country like american like foreign policy loved putin at that time they were like finally an ex-kgb <laughs> guy who's like got his hand on the wheel but likes capitalism awesome i think springer does he does a whole lot uh without saying very much and really letting a lot of the footage speak for itself um but but he does some things really well. And one of the things that he does, I think, is illuminate how like truly meaningless all of the distinctions between these people in power are. Yes. There's something sort of equalizing about seeing all of them in these moments of of candor and sort of like relaxed kind of vulnerability, right? right? They they all start to feel like the same person who have the same types of people advising them how to avoid answering a question, who have the same people making them up, who have the same talk show hosts 
sucking their dicks in between takes like it it really does this this uh incredible job of of enforcing this idea that we we on the left know well which is that like all of these people have interests that are aligned the things that distinguish them are merely aesthetic and the aesthetics are put in place by the media and i think you can tell who someone is uh, politically as a person whether the fact they're all the same is comforting or discomforting Yes. That's the division. Oh, there's always a smart hand on the wheel and Trump is just a weird aberrant, you know, in that line. Yeah. Or like, no, there's multiple like ideological projects and it kind of sucks that the end resolution politically is always kind of going to be aligned enough to make sure, you know, at best you get a war of different industries fighting each other to have competing (laughs) interests. That's kind of the best you get to maybe join the side that has the interests that kind of align with you a little bit, but only because they really want to like, you know, take out them. So yeah, yeah, completely difference. (laughs) I think the other thing that, that Springer does really well is just completely skewer this conceit of journalistic integrity that America has. Yeah. Right. Like it's this really lauded place in our in our landscape of you know what a person could do it's seen as really candid it's seen as really honest really noble um and he just blows all of that right out the window and i don't want us to forget to talk briefly about the kerner commission yeah because I think that's so important and he 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 lingers on it and brings it up in the first place for a reason because the the Kerner Commission after the the Watts riots right found that the media was one of two reasons why violence um was as bad as it was um during this period in our history and and that it found that the media did not do a, a good job informing the public of what was actually going on and 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 informing the public of the sort of full spectrum of racial dynamics in America. And he brings it up again in the context of the LA riots and of our, our current landscape of media. And, and he really drives home the fact that it isn't just manipulation that the media is guilty of, but it is also guilty of obfuscation. Right. It's got an active hand in all of this. And, you know, as a secondary kind of side uh, stray bullet from all this is, you know, you mentioned, we mentioned Aaron Sorkin in the war room, but Mm -hmm. nothing that happens in spin happens in any Sorkinian drama of any kind. When the cameras drop, they're all still very serious and they're all still like not, you know, uh, what's, what's Allison Jane's character's name? CJ, CJ, CJ journalist. I can't tell you what I'm going to do. I'm a journalist. That would never happen. Meanwhile, Larry, Larry King is like, so Ted Turner uh, has some knee pads on in case you win, just <laughs> right. to make it clear. <laughs> like, it is His really mouth is like, open. <laughs> He's ready to go. Yeah. What that mouth do. Um <laughs> And uh, God, he's got a huge mouth too. That makes that joke even funnier. Um, (laughs) But uh, Google Ted Turner mouth and you'll see what I'm talking about. But uh, (laughs) yeah, no, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely 
all on point and there's no reconciliation of the reality of like these forces working together accidentally because they all are the same kinds of people, which, you know, like you said, Kerner distinguished that both racially and sexually. There's no, there's no women, there's no minorities in the media. And that's an issue that's been like getting corrected over time um, to some degree, but the ideological portion of it too is like Mm -hmm. Clinton ironically had policies that were great for like a lot of small businesses that like were run by minorities, small business association, but then we now have this capital class that is like a larger capital class that is minority that now has capital perspectives, but from a minority kind of orientation. Yeah. Uh, and it's not totally aligned, but it definitely is aligned enough. You can find some people who agree with you on what was basically like the homogenous truth prior. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Eric Adams. Joy Reid. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh man, Eric Adams—he's yeah. a little too out there, though. He—he seems—he seems a bad example just because he's like talking about the crystals under Manhattan that make. Yeah, yeah. he's also vibes. yeah. That's a good point. He's also a nut. Ca- yeah. A yeah, he so. saw he saw uh, <laughs> he saw Santa with muscles, the Hulk Hogan film uh, that taught him that all all or all orphanages have have uh, power crystals underneath them that can he be did, mined for, for infrastructure <laughs> I, purposes. Politics would be so much better if people like voted for like a representative of an area that had no political power, but it's just like, yeah, I'm King Manhattan. And Eric Adams <laughs> would be perfect for King Manhattan if he had no real authority and he just had like a wrestling belt and he like, right? Oh, that would be so great. But and then there was just like, uh, you know, the Manhattan dork, and then like you got to be the Manhattan dork and everyone would call you the dork, but you like actually had power over what happened that would be a relatively better system if we could manage it somehow yeah it would yeah you're like, right that's higher the british they got their royals i was just gonna yeah. say the british <laughs> figured it out we got to find some sort of title and some sort of method by which to yeah like create these sort of fiefdoms and people who lead them and also have our village idiots and give them both you know some sort of sway within their societal order we'll work on that that's our project now is hit factory why can't we just make Trump king of Twitter? Why can't we just his his profile has like a little <laughs> crown above the circle, and just he would take how many it. problems could that solve? And he, right, he, it really would. My, my, the one thing I'm devastated by is that like you know Trump's ban, uh, you know, largely uh, it predates the the rise of spaces because I'm just imagining oh Trump my God. like holding like a weekly space that we could all just like tune into and like what would be said in it. Yeah, it just it just sounds like a really <laughs> incredible opportunity for us to just you know here here's some really unhinged shit uh i'm glad we're so we're ending on trump because i think both of these films are are sort of speaking to a, an idea that i want to put forth to both of you which is that there's i think probably since the 90s if not before then but definitely we see with the war room since the early 90s there is this idea that um while politics may be about spectacle they are ultimately about manners right they're about sort of like you know polish Mm -hmm. manners uh the the heavy mediation and curation of images of talking points, the refining of sentences down to, you know, where a comma is right. Like this West wing thinking. Um, 
And Spin really illuminates how heavy handed that mediation is. We see, you know, the the mediation in full force in the war room. Trump basically comes along and proves that like none of that matters, right? right? That like you can actually like blow all of that out the window and Americans won't actually care. Where for a long time, I think a lot of the tension that was keeping the, the you know, image of a placid political sea afloat is the tension coming from like, well, we're all sort of operating under this notion that that we need to behave and and the behaving is what makes everything go. So if you just like fall in line and say your perfect little sentence and wear the right tie and, you know, whatever the fuck else, everything will be fine. And like none of that actually matters. I, I would even argue, too, that it wasn't even just that Trump came along and like sidestepped all of that and like blew it all up and that people didn't care. I think it's actually that people uh, found it profoundly refreshing that like we had created this apparatus that like held on to those those rules and and basically had sort of like calcified it into this kind of dogma that like the first person that comes along and starts shoving people around a little bit suddenly feels unmoored from that system in a way that like people latch on to because of its authenticity quote unquote but also like the novelty of it I feel like it's worth discussing in that context, too, that in 2016, he performed worse than Romney in 2012. Yeah. So there was definitely a portion of Republicans who were like a little like the the Trump is going to ruin everything stuff. Like it did work to some degree. He did worse than Romney, despite having way more media and a much like less robust campaign and less skilled campaign. But it's also important to remember that by the time 2020 happened, his voter count increased dramatically across the mm-hmm. board, especially in POC and women. Yeah. And that those were all the people who were like, oh, he's he was like he spoke well enough to really I, I'm not scared of him anymore because he kind of did what I wanted. And like he won a lot of people over before 2020. We just got lucky that Brandon's just such a likable guy with that big smile and his uh, our, di- our diamond joe <laughs> diamond joe man he's just talking about how like corn pop used to give him choco tacos and yeah. things were just <laughs> you know really really like turning on the nitrous for the whole country being like yeah like it was- <laughs> this guy's gonna do it what's he gonna do he's gonna fall off a bike yeah but pete that was the, that was relatable they felt though. way more comfortable nice. with trump that's the important part is they def people felt way more comfortable with Trump in 2020 than they did in 2016. Yeah. So he broke that mold and it, it worked. People were like, Oh, I guess he, you know, not enough happened. So. Yeah. Well, and as you know, things, things continue to worsen in this country and you have a, a whole swath of a population that doesn't quite understand why, but understands that the establishment is maybe kind of problematic for whatever reason someone who seems anti-establishment despite being vehemently you know part of the status quo in in many ways is going to seem palliative to a certain degree no matter how kind of allergic you may be to his like surface level uh trappings Right. Uh, you, you know, I'm just, I'm just curious when this like podcast got sponsored by Russia. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's a good question, Grim. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the we're not at liberty to say. Yeah. We the the Mueller she wrote uh, folks will definitely be honest for this one <laughs> oh with a, with a magnifying glass. To which we say, you know, at least we didn't. You know, we, we had to go to Russia uh, because we didn't get. Eighty thousand dollars in PPP loans granted right. to this podcast. Uh, you know, so was it eighty thousand? It was something like that. <laughs> it was She's a lot like, of money. Look, look. Yeah, I may have gotten my loans paid back, We're- but. <laughs> yeah, I think it was after the PPP and student loans. It came out it to like a uh, like a hundred. It was more than that. It was like it was definitely six figures. Like, yeah. yeah, it was it was six figures for Gross. sure. Uh, but yeah, we had to get our money from from uh, Putin and the boys because the, no one here would do it. And the, the PPP stuff was uh, that well had run dry by the time we got there. So damn. Yeah. All I want to say, Grim, ultimately is that I'm so grateful to you for, for bringing us this film for suggesting oh, spin a year and a half ago or however long it was. <laughs> and that and we, we finally watched it and that we kept our <laughs> promise and we made it happen because I think this is, an incredible film. And I think it's something that literally every American should watch. And yeah. the fact that it's on YouTube right now makes me really happy. And I want everyone to watch it. Yeah. If, if we, it, it's been on YouTube for like 10 years. It's I yeah, love that. Yeah. If we achieve one thing with the podcast, I think it should just, it, it should be, you know, watch the war room. It's, it's a, a good documentary. Watch it with an asterisk and, and understand, you know, Clinton's legacy post 92. Uh, but definitely, definitely watch spin and let it, uh, you know, confirm for you maybe some beliefs you've already held and and otherwise uh, inform some things that maybe you are less clear on uh, because it, it really is, I feel like, a vital piece of media that more people uh, should have eyes on. And it, you know what is interesting is people always think of the past with this stuff, but almost every person you see in those frames are still there. You yes. know, they're working in some capacity and they have power. The the 30-year-old like uh, a woman in the corner in one scene, she's now 55 and she's a, a leadership in the Democratic Party. Like that's I know some of those faces. Like these are not these people do not go away just because like, you know, W1 and 2000. They they hold on to power just like anyone else does in any other job. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, that is going to do it uh, for us today and for this episode. Go watch these documentaries, uh, especially Spin, given that it's it's widely available to watch on YouTube. We'll definitely be linking it so in, in the show description here. Uh, special thanks again, as we've already said, to our, our wonderful guest, Grim. Grim, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Where can uh, where can people find you, Grim? I'm online at, at Exile Grimm on uh, on Twitter, and I, I have a podcast called Why the Last Pod, but I'm doing a new one called The Greatest Depression that is, uh, I basically stole Blowback's format before the Great Depression. Hell yes. Fantastic. Looking forward I to hearing it. I will be that. tuning into that. Yeah. We'll make sure to link so people can find you, Grimm. Uh, from us, thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow along with us at Hit Factory Pod. You can also subscribe uh, on Patreon for bi-weekly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. Shout out to our overlords. We call them Linda and Jesse K. <laughs> and we will catch you all the next time. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>